I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Aaron Armstrong. And what are we going to talk about today? The movie Labyrinth. So, Maya, have you seen the movie Labyrinth? Yeah. Did you like the movie Labyrinth? No. I want to watch it. You want to watch the movie? What was your favorite part of the movie? Oh, uh, well, this is kind of scary for me. It was kind of scary for no, you? the bad guy is kind of scary for me. The bad guy. Oh, the Goblin King? Yeah, he was kind of... He was kind of stinky. He was stinky? Yeah, because he farted. I mean, he may have farted. It's it's kind of a dirty place they have going on there, isn't it? Yeah. So, what what's your favorite song from the movie? Wait, what's that guy named who's peeing in the water? <laughs> oh, Hoggle? Oh, Hoggle. Okay. Is he peeing in the water? Yeah, but what? Oh, I don't like Hoggle. You don't like Hoggle? Who do you like? Oh, he said, yeah. You like the princess? Yeah, but he said, yeah. Did you like the dance magic wait, dance song? Wait, yeah. But he, the, the dance person, which, wait, was the Goblin King laughing to? Was the Goblin King laughing? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Why? Well, he was like, ha, 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 I got the baby now. Oh, I have Goblin King. You're the Goblin King? I can't. No, you are. Can you sing the song for me? I can't. Why not? Can you just show it to me? You want to watch the movie again? Yeah. Is it one of your favorite movies? Yeah. I'm going to watch it right now. Okay. We'll watch it right now. Okay? Okay. Say, all right. Good night, everyone. All right. Good night, everyone. I love you. I miss you. I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Morgan Runis. And we love to watch... We love to watch the power of voodoo. Voodoo? voodoo? You do. The mind is the baby. I saw my baby crying for the space. Could cry. What could I do? Peter. Hey, Morgan. Hello, everybody. Hey so if you... <laughs> Morgan's German now. Yeah, he's, he's German. <laughs> he's back. Uh, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you would think that this is a labyrinth, our third week of uh, 80s fantasy movie month, and it's just going to be a Peter and Aaron episode, and boom! Surprise. I'm I'm here. I busted in. It's very uncomfortable for everyone involved. You know how old <laughs> 70s TV shows used to say and like special guest star? This is special when it's a surprise. It's if a surprise coming, guest it's star. It's not special. It's not special if you know it's coming. Exactly. What makes surprise party special is you don't know about them. I buy that. Like if you're having a you're having a party and they tell you that it's going to happen, you just spend the whole night miserable. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's the worst. It's like someone's like gives you money, you know? Yeah. When, when are you going to give me money? Tomorrow? <laughs> yeah, that's payday. Well, that's not very special. Not at all. Um so uh Morgan, how you doing, bud? I'm I'm good. I've uh I've I've had an interesting month or so, you know. I'm just uh I'm just kind of hanging out. I haven't really done anything since the last episode I was on. I've just been kind of miserably existing in the universe. That's awesome. Just drinking. Wow, that's great. And uh, going to college. I pretty much have no updates since the last time I was on. Terrific. 
Awesome. That's a really sad and miserable thanks. way to get get off on this uh, this whole episode train. <laughs> well, thanks, thanks for coming, Morgan. Hey, no problem. <laughs> thanks for sharing yourself to our audience. I, I appreciate the honest appraisal. That's yeah. really like uh, our audience comes. This is like Mark Maron's show. Like our audience comes for like the honesty, the rawness, the raw, you know? raw honesty yeah. of movies. Yeah, that's why we cut out one third of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that raw honesty. Literally the most exciting thing that has happened to me in like the past week and a half is I found uh y'all play that Nintendo, that Nintendo Switch. Yeah. We both do, yeah. Oh, okay. So I found this dude who makes uh Joy-Con replacement shells, and he makes them in the old 90s atomic purple color, and I ordered them, and they came in today, and they are literally, I compared them to my old 90s atomic purple N64 controller, and they are the exact same plastic. That's really fun. It's really depressing, but that's the most exciting thing going on right now. (laughs) So if if you're listening to this episode, and you're like, hey, I heard Morgan's last episode, is this gonna be internally consistent? Just remember, if it's not... Morgan has uh, changed in any perceptible way, good, bad, who knows? Just, just keep in mind this entire episode. Oh yeah, you got that purple Nintendo controller. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's the uh, that's the exciting character development that happened in the few months since the last time I was here. We don't know how it's going to affect him. That's why we had him on. To do a, yeah. a very, if you guys don't like Labyrinth, just know you're contributing to science. True. And <laughs> if there's a time uh, that we need science more than 2018, I don't know what it is. So he is on this podcast. What is this podcast? If you've never heard it before, it's called We Love to Watch. We talk about movies. There was a vacuum of podcasts that talked about uh, films, and we stepped right into that vacuum. Uh, And uh, ever since, we've been having breathing problems, uh, not because it's cramped, but because of the vacuum of space sucks all the air in there. It is not because it's cramped in here. So when I heard you guys are doing a movie podcast, I was like, is that going to work? That's never been tried before. But by golly, it has paid off wonderfully. Song podcast makes sense because, okay, I get it. Uh, I hear songs with my ears and they're going to talk about them in the same way I experience the songs. Uh-huh. I'm sure if you heard that we were doing a YouTube series on films, you'd be like, that all that all makes sense to me. It's it's films. I'm gonna watch it. I'm gonna hear it. All the normal film stuff. They're gonna do it that way. This we're really blowing the lid wide open. It's really experimental form. Yeah, it's sort of conceptually heavy. I think is what Morgan is hinting. Yes. At. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, I think we've weirdly not only stepped into this new uncharted territory, but mastered it also, which I think is more, well, also what Morgan's saying. Yeah. Well, he's not saying it, but he's thinking. I'm he's definitely thinking hinting towards it physically, which you can't see because it's an audio-only format, which is uh, something that has never been done before in the cinematic uh, canon. Yeah, no, and make sure you turn into our uh, our spinoff that we're doing for this network, uh, a series of sketches about video games. <laughs> <laughs> Will you perhaps be angry at those games in a nerdy way? Arr, I'm so angry at games. Arr. No, we're really going to blow the lid off the whole thing. We're going to enjoy video games. Oh. Uh, sketches about them. We're going to see what happens. Wow. You can subscribe mm. on Sketchflix. 
<laughs> uh, so yeah, so we're we're talking about movies. This week's movie is the third week, as I mentioned, of uh, '80s Fantasy Month, which has already been a blast. And we're talking about a movie called Labyrinth, and I'm very excited to talk about it. This is the movie I have seen most from uh, watched it for, for the show to uh, to recorded this episode, uh, because as I may mention at some point in this episode. Uh, my daughter watched it with me the first time, and oh. she fucking loved it. And we have watched it uh, four times in full since first watching it two weeks ago. And then, as you do with three-year-olds, uh, a couple other times, like half of it. I watched 45 minutes of it tonight because she she wanted to she wanted to watch it. Uh, so I've seen a bunch. Um, but I hadn't really seen it. I had only seen the first, like, hour before this. So, very excited to get into it. Morgan was nice enough to guest because uh, he's a huge David Bowie fan. And obviously, a little guy named David Bowie is in this movie. So, for an opening segment, we're going to start there. We're going to talk a little bit about our feelings of David Bowie. Because this, this is probably, like, his most iconic film role. Unless you're in certain nerdy movie circles, in which case it's the man who fell to earth. But if you're just like one of the populace walking around buying Subway sandwiches, definitely when you think of David Bowie as an actor, uh, you you think of Labyrinth. Um, or the, that one Flight of the Concord song. Uh, or his one scene in Extras. His scene in Extras where he makes fun Oh of yeah, Ricky Gervais has single-handedly justified Ricky Gervais. Yes. So yeah, Morgan, why don't you why don't you start? I know you're a huge Bowie fan. I mean, that feels yeah. like saying you're a big Beatles fan at this point. Yeah, but, kind um, of. Although that wasn't always the case. I feel like uh, this is going to sound really weird. It feels like that kind of turned when he died, which is really kind of a morbid note to start on, out on. I got into Bowie as a lot of people do. Um, I was an outcast, uh, kind of lonely queer kid who didn't really know what they wanted to do with their lives. Uh, you know, I knew I was into art. I didn't know what to make of pretty much anything. And my brother, who was super into, like, underground 80s music, like Mission to Burma, Pixies, all that, uh, he burned me a bunch of uh, CDs when I was in, like, 14, and one of them was David Bowie's Greatest Hits. And I really turned on to that. I started ferociously consuming all his music, um, and I, along with maybe the Pixies and uh, Iggy Pop, maybe Big Black, maybe my favorite artist of all time. He's super duper versatile. He definitely opened my eyes a lot to uh, the possibility of queer art because uh, he was famously bisexual and then he wasn't in the 80s when he sold out and then he was again and then he t- asked people to shut the fuck up about it. Um, <laughs> hey, his selling out phase made some of his best music. <laughs> I own a dangerous amount of David Bowie uh, vinyl, at least. I probably have 50 pounds of David Bowie vinyl in, this ro- in my room. I have every album he's released from like 1969 to 1983. And then I kind of jump off a bit and skip most of the 80s for a reason that Labyrinth kind of ties into, which is that he horribly sold out in the mid 80s. But yeah, because it is actually really interesting, like why he did the movie. But um, yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. Yeah, that's pretty much who he means to me as an artist is just like queer awakening, artistic expression. And he's someone who has a deep emotional attachment to a large section of people. And it's for 
all sorts of reasons, like because he made awesome, like fun dance music. Uh He made really heartfelt, like ballads that people associate with. And he made songs about being, uh, feeling like a monster or feeling like an outsider, like however, used all sorts of terminology for not feeling like he was part of the deal. And he also made a lot of movies where he was like this outsider or, uh, you know, an, uh, an iconic an iconoclast or or somebody who like was breaking from the mainstream and i think like the wide variety of his discography kind of shows off like why he's so fun to dive into how old were you when you got into bowie again 13 15 uh 13 or 14 which i think is like the perfect age to get into his music yes aaron what about you so i actually got into him much later he was one of those acts where sometimes you hear a song by an artist and you like changes or something. And it seems to you like, especially at that era where it's like, oh, this is like a old man music. This is my dad's music. Yeah. And I have no connection to it. And, and that's the, they just keep playing, say that song on the shitty FM station that you grow up in. And as I, we talked about this on the, the last couple episodes, I am the oldest. So my, and we didn't have MTV and I lived in a small town. My music came from like random cassettes I found of my dad uh, and uh, and stuff hearing like my friends say something was cool and then going one Weezer CD, please. So uh, so like David Bowie, it wasn't till later on. And I just associated him from like one or two of those oldie songs you hear on the radio. And then uh, a combination of two things happened in uh, in college. One, I saw uh, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zazu and really liked the soundtrack and then discovered, oh, these are these are David Bowie songs. Uh, and then I started to purchase as many as I could of the Rolling Stone release their um, 500 greatest albums of all time list in 2004. And so I was like, I'm going to like listen. To, I, at that point, it was big Napster time. And I was just downloading a lot of individual tracks, LimeWire, all that shit. I'm like, I'm going to get into albums. <laughs> you know, something like a, a very college age student says. I'm going to actually listen to albums all the way through. So I start buying all these Beatles and Clash and Pixies and, you know, all these albums and started listening to them. Um, David Bowie. And I'm like, oh, my God, these are these are all really good, which is such a dumb thing to to say out loud. Like, yes, all of these greatest musical geniuses are very good. But that was like kind of the the combination of those two things kind of was my turning point. And then I became uh, a big, a big David Bowie fan. Um, he It's so funny about his filmography, though, just because you mentioned that he's been in a lot of movies. If you look over it, he really hasn't. It's just every movie he's a part of, big part, little part, it is it is iconic because he was this like magnetic alien presence on screen so it doesn't matter if it's punch's pilot in last temptation of christ or you know the opening scene of twin peaks fire walk with me or a more substantial role like labyrinth like you the thing you remember from most of those movies is that david bowie was in them one quick note on i think why people find him so fun to explore kind of at any age i do i I think i was a little older than morgan i was like 15 16 when i got really into bowie and it was kind of fun to in a very fast-paced way uh go through his discography and every time you put on a record anytime you started a new song from any of his albums anytime you you got into a new bowie album you just be like 
I don't know what the fuck this is going to be. Especially if you don't, like, you aren't familiar with the singles of it. You're like, I have no idea what low is going to sound yeah. like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sta- uh, I had no idea that Station to Station wasn't going to sound anything like Ziggy Stardust. And then I listened to it a shit ton and I was like, oh, this is like an emotional journey that he went on. And this is him when he's really into cocaine. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is so thrilling because, like, yeah, like, it's it's... It's really cliche to say, like, you love the Beatles, but I love the Beatles. But, like, their experiments were within a, I think, a smaller range. than Yeah, you're you're talking about six years, like six years for the Beatles to do everything they did. But you're 100% right. Like, when I first – the two uh, Bowie albums I bought first were Hunky Dory because I wanted to hear Queen Bitch, uh, the ending song from uh, Life Aquatic. And I bought uh, Modern uh, Modern Love. Yes. And both of those were, like, listening to – from The Wedding Singer. Yeah. Well, no, because I just – I wanted to hear Modern Love. You know, those were the two albums that I first bought in, in 2004 when I went and picked up a couple of those albums at the Best Buy. And it was like listening to two different singers. It, uh, that's why I love it is that like each new album is like a new adventure in a way that doesn't feel like he ever betrayed uh, himself up until about, yeah, like 1983, 1984. Uh, I would say 85 is when he really sold out. Yeah, I, I think I really, really dig Let's Dance. I think that's for some people like, okay, this is fun, but I'm drawing the line here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what I meant. I meant, I didn't mean Modern Love. I meant Let's Dance. I was about to say, yeah, yeah, hold yeah. on just a minute there, Buster. Yeah. <laughs> I assumed you were buying 45s. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, that's, and so getting back to him as an actor, this or The Prestige is probably his most notable role uh, for mass audiences. Or Zoolander. Where you played Nikola Tesla. Yes, you also also played uh, David Bowie, uh, a fun little character in the movie Zoolander. And Zoolander had so little faith in the audience that was seeing the movie age-wise. They're like, they put this is David Bowie on screen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, which actually at the time I would probably would have been... Oh, yeah, I didn't 11, know. 11, I probably needed it. That's a good point. So I think, yeah, he hasn't been in a ton of movies, but each role is very unique it it isn't doesn't suffer from the rock and roll singer goes and is in is in a movie thing which sometimes happens where uh, a musician decides to be in a movie and then all of a sudden he like acts super blasé like a stage persona like Bowie came into acting in a very honest way where he was like I'm going to try and do this performance as this actor and not just be like oh this movie will build my brand yeah. Yeah, and I think part of that is is that unlike a lot of musicians, Bowie actually had like classical acting training. Um, a lot of people, especially musicians, if they get into acting, it's they started as musicians and then got into acting to either supplement it or they were bored of the music thing. And for Bowie, it was he wanted to be an artist he didn't know what type of artist he wanted to be so he tried acting for a little bit i think that was the first thing he went into and then he tried miming uh and then he finally broke through with music but i mean uh if you dig up uh there is you can't find it on youtube anymore it used to be there but his talent agency actually put together a film reel of this is our talent david bowie check out all the things he can do and it's like a stage sketch and a mime sketch he wrote and performed which is actually really really good it's called the mask and it's basically the first time bowie ever did a art piece on fame one of his favorite subjects and then it has the original video to space odyssey uh the one with all the like horribly cheap tacky 
spacesuits. But yeah, he was pretty much a man, a uh, triple threat. Yeah, I would have loved if he would have kept that going. And it's like, you know, he's uh, he's doing a concert or something and is like, all right, this is life on Mars. Yeah. All right. This is me in a box. <laughs> I'm in a box. <laughs> no. Uh, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to be the random Bowie fact, man. But there was actually this is hilarious. Um, so he was best friends in 1970 with Mark Bolin, the lead singer of T-Rex. Um, well, I say best friends. They were more like friendly rivals. And what happened was is Bowie had a one hit wonder with Space Odyssey in 69 kind of flared out and didn't really go anywhere after that. Meanwhile, T-Rex got super, super popular. And Mark Bolin called up Bowie and was like, hey, I need an opening act. Do you want to fill in? And Bowie was like, shit, yeah, dude. I mean, I got, I just recorded this album, Man Who Sold the World. I, Yeah, let's do it. And, and then he gets there and Mark Bolin says, oh, great. Hey, can you do a 30-minute mime act as the opening act? <laughs> and that was literally the entire tour of Britain. Bowie was so humiliated, but he was so poor at the time that he couldn't say no. So there was an entire tour where David Bowie mime opening act was a thing you could see. I didn't know Mark Bolin was that kind of dick. Oh, yeah, no. I knew he was a dick. I didn't know he was that kind of dick. Bowie uh, described their first meeting as them basically insulting each other's clothing because they were both forced to paint the office of their... Because uh, they shared a manager and they were both forced to paint his office. And they <laughs> opened with... Uh, Bolin looked over at Bowie and said, your shoes are shit. And Bowie replied, yeah, well, you're short, so who cares? <laughs> yeah, and that, I guess that all makes sense, though, because like when people think of David Bowie, like he's, an, he's definitely an artist and he's a musician, but people think of him as a performer which is why he like he had a very like regimented i shouldn't say regimented but he had like phases that he wanted to go through like he had a sense of like not just making music but making a show around that music and a persona that fit the music he was going for at that time so you've created the modern pop performance exactly I mean, yeah. the idea especially of the, the big wardrobes and the idea of you coming out on stage with this like massive personality is like that specific sort of pop manipulation of it is is all him oh yeah i mean the the list of pop acts who could not exist without bowie is insane i mean there's obviously like you wouldn't get Kiss without Bowie. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't get Lady Gaga without Bowie. You wouldn't get St. Vincent without Bowie. And then even, you know, just purely from a live standpoint, yeah, pretty much every pop act who does a wardrobe change or does something other than get up on stage and sing, that's all Bowie. Because, you know, if you look at live video of the Beatles or the Stones or mc5 or any of the big acts before 1972 when he did the ziggy stardust tour it's all pretty much we get up on stage we sing our set for an hour and we go home maybe there's a camera involved and that's about it you're right on the modern pop thing because the other thing that bowie did a very good job of is he wasn't just i'm going to be like make david bowie music he was very good at, like, taking trends and music that he was interested in and filtering it into, like, his own version of it, which is very much the modern pop star. You know, whether it's oh, yeah. Justin Timberlake taking from, like, I'm going to make Michael Jackson songs. You know, uh, you listen to something like Hunky Dory and he's like, I'm going to make Velvet Underground songs. Yeah. And, uh, and or and you, you know, you can go through his... His albums, he was very impacted by the time, but then was such a creative genius, he would then, like, like filter in the music that he was hearing and, like, spit out a new version that then went on to influence uh, everyone else. So, 
he's like almost like a great like mediator of each decade where like he would take everything in and then spit it out and influence everything that would come after that. Yeah. Mark Boland didn't get a chance to kind of, we didn't get to see if he would do the kinks thing where he just kind of like turned in on himself and kind of got really, really shitty in the eighties. Or if he would do the, the David Bowie thing, which is like, just like, well, if I don't adapt, I'm going to die. So let's move it. There was kind of a hint of what Mark Bolin would do because he did a variety show in the late 70s after his uh, album career kind of fizzled out because he was addicted to like heroin and coke. Uh, And then once he got through rehab, he started a variety show and his last... Very spooky. The very last episode he did before he died in the car crash was he did a duet with Bowie on Heroes. So, and it sounds very much like, um, it kind of reminds me of, uh, early Prince where it's new wavy, but it's still very heavily guitar focused. So if you want a what if thing, I honestly think Prince had a pretty good idea of where Mark Bolin would have gone in the eighties is he still would have been very guitar driven, but there would be a lot of new wave influence underneath it. And that does uh, create a slightly larger tragedy because it is interesting to think like, where would these guys have, have gone? I didn't know. But, that. you know, you could be here all day with, this? you know, the breadcrumbs left by dead musicians like Kurt Cobain. You go through his old demos right before he died. He was probably going to turn into a folk singer in the late nineties. But that's not why we're here. No, we're here to have Peter rank tragedies of people that died too young. Yeah. And how good he thinks their later career would have been. (laughs) So, um, yeah, let's – I think that's a pretty good intro to Bowie. Yeah. Um, I think we we talked a lot of sugar about Bowie. Uh, It's not something you necessarily need, but it's something maybe we need. And maybe you do need it. So, let's let's talk about Labyrinth, guys. Yeah. Let's talk about David Bowie – Manipulating crystals. <laughs> David Bowie with the Fushigi balls. I honestly believe, <laughs> hold up, before we transition into the music, I honestly believe that they just found out David Bowie could do that. We're like, we're making that a part of this movie. Oh, no, no, no. I actually know the story no behind sense. this. Bowie, okay. Bowie trivia machine coming up. So the script called for the Fushigi balls. And Bowie looked at it and was like, what the fuck is a Fushigi? So they hired the world's greatest juggler. I shit you not, put him in a black morph suit, and every time Bowie is doing one of those scenes, there is a world-class juggler under Bowie's robes. Bowie has his arms behind his back, and that's just all blind juggling. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. But that's how amazing Bowie is. I honestly thought, by not doing any research, that like, oh, yeah, Bowie could probably just do that. And then Jim Henson was like, put that in the fucking movie. (laughs) Because it's it's weirdly... uh, combined with the story like it doesn't really do the the crystal that he's talking about doesn't do anything uh besides trapper later weirdly anyways we'll get into that as we start talking about labyrinth yes let's talk about peter you are alternate taglines I'm alternate taglines, and it And your future wife is going to be Mrs. Taglines. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mr. Alternate Taglines, and what I've got for you is going to be great. It's, do you want to see David Bowie seducing a child <laughs> through a hallucinogenic peach dream? 
I thought you were going to go with the more obvious, which is, do you want to see David Bowie's dick? <laughs> Y'all want to see David Bowie's dick? Is this a Man Who Fell to Earth episode? Oh. <laughs> when it's... Any episode with uh, with Dave Bowie is going to be a little bit of one of our famous uh, Richard Talk segments. Richard Talk. Richard Talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Aaron, would you like to sort of take us on the journey of Labyrinth in a period of time that we will not say? It's going on a little journey of, of whim- whimsy. Um, whimsy. And creepiness. So, uh, Labyrinth is a movie. Made by Jim Henson. So guess what, motherfuckers? There's some Muppets. Oh, hell yeah. Like, most of the movie is Muppets. So, but we got a, little, we got a girl. She's 15, named Sarah. Her mom's like, go on date. She's like, you're the worst. I'm going to pretend to be a princess in the woods. Um, Kind of on the mother's side a little bit, but that's neither here nor there. So she has to babysit. She's like, don't care about this brother of mine. Not great. Want to be in the woods with my dog playing princess. So she wishes for the Goblin King to take the baby. The Goblin King obliges, does a nice thing. And then she's like, oh, I'm going to be in so much trouble because my baby got disappeared. And uh, so she's like, I'm going to get the baby back. David Bowie's like, good luck because the construction uh, our city planner was a was uh, had some problems. Like he designed this labyrinth, so if you can get to my house in the middle of the labyrinth, good luck. So she starts making her way, and there's a lot of little tricks in the labyrinth that she has to get past. the The movie structure is designed like a modern video game, which I actually really like. Uh, it's like one challenge after another. Uh, these little moments from scene to scene until she gets to the big boss fight at the end. Uh, she meets some friends along the way. They they have some wonderful song and dance numbers, uh, all written by David Bowie, even the ones that he is not singing. Uh, like one of my favorites, Chili Down, which is um, the worst compositing ever put to film, but a very catchy song. And uh, so, she, yeah, she gets she, – she has her ragtap group of people um, – a Muppet, another bigger Muppet, a smaller Muppet. They all converge on the castle. Uh, she chases David Bowie in the an MC Escher painting. She gets the baby back. She gets home, and it's kind of for a second. It's kind of like one of those Peter Pan Wizard of Oz endings where, hey, she had all the pieces in her room. The the uh, uh, the game of labyrinth, uh, the maze thing. Wizard of Oz books, uh, MC Escher paintings. Maybe she invented this herself, and she says she misses her friends, and all the friends come back, and they have a dance party. All movies should end with dance parties, five stars. I don't know. I think Moonlight really needed a dance party at the end. Moonlight, yes. Great soundtrack. Why didn't they dance? Yeah, come on. That would be a perfect ending. You know, he gets to the to his boyfriend's house in Puerto Rico and is like, I've never banged anyone else. And then there's that awkward silence for a few minutes. And instead of just cutting to black, they, they boogie down to a classic man. Way yeah. better ending. Weirdly, uh, they also boogie down to Chili Down <laughs> from this movie. And then the protagonist of Moonlight takes off his head. That would have turned some heads at the old Oscar ceremonies. So I think that the movie is good. Do you guys think that the movie is good? Oh, man, I think it's great. I've seen it a bunch, so I am more qualified than both of you to say that. But it's great. <laughs> I love it. Um, this is going to sound weird because I'm 
probably the biggest Bowie fan I know. I had never seen this movie until tonight, right before the podcast. Oh my god, what'd you think? Uh, I really liked it. I'm probably the only Bowie fan who was like, I'm going to watch Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, before I get to that labyrinth. I'm going to put that one off. <laughs> well, as I as I have said on this podcast before, I'd never seen it all the way through. I have seen the first hour, hour and a half, about uh, a little bit past the fart swamp, a ton of time. Uh, or like the first half hour just because it was one of my good friends in college favorite movies and so it was a classic like after bar movie for us and as a lot of after bar movies uh that you don't make it to the end so i never made it to the end of this movie or if i did i don't remember it so it was my first time watching it all the way through but i i felt like i had seen a bunch of it before and i and i had and i always said that i really liked what i had seen and this yeah no this solidified it like i it's charming. It's the creature design is great, and it's it's a it's a very funny movie that makes me laugh. And we should talk about that for a sec before we get into some more personal reactions. So, directed by Jim Henson, it's basically one of the only movies that he directed uh, by himself. Dark Crystal, which came before this, was directed by him and Frank Oz, and he was you know he. Jim Henson was obviously this amazing uh, creative force, a person that I would personally consider a uh, one of my like top five celebrity heroes. And he was trying to branch off from Muppet stuff and made the Dark Crystal and was uh, depressed about the reaction to that movie and kind of agreed with some of the criticism that it was a little bit too self-serious. Because one thing that Jim Henson uh, is very good at is having heartfelt and serious moments but also having a sense of comedy. And uh, as someone who has seen The Dark Crystal, it I like The Dark Crystal. The Dark Crystal can be a little bit of a slog because it is stone-cold serious for the entire uh, movie. Uh, so he wanted to make a funnier movie, and as such, he enlisted Terry Jones from Monty Python to help him write this movie, which makes so much sense. I didn't know that uh when I had seen it all those years ago, because this movie is, I think, very funny in a lot of moments and has that very Python-ass sense of humor uh, where it's kind of commenting on the ridiculousness while still um, while still having all the characters take it pretty seriously. So he makes this movie. He gets, you know, they, they, I know they're uh, – Morgan, I'll let you speak to a little bit how David Bowie ended up in this movie because they were looking for a lot of different um, – a lot of different musicians to play this part. They end up getting David Bowie. Uh, and this movie was a even worse failure than Dark Crystal and sent Jim Henson into a deep, dark uh, depression for a couple years, according to his son, which is a huge bummer. And it's also a huge bummer to read the, the reviews at the time. Like, it's so funny to – in the context of time – we. Peter and I talk about this all the time with how a movie like Leviathan, which is not that great of a movie, but adds value in the fact that there's not that many practical effects, sea monster, Peter Weller movies. When you're watching it now, you know those aren't going to exist anymore. So it adds a sense of value that may not have existed when the movie came out in 1989. Reading Roger Ebert and other people's contemporary reviews of Labyrinth where they're like – this is sort of boring and not that good and the special effects are meh. Motherfucker, not only are you not getting more Jim Henson movies after this, essentially, uh, you're not going to get, like, this much practical effects and Muppet work. Like, if someone made a version of Labyrinth now that was half this good, everyone would be like, 
this is amazing. They don't make movies like this anymore. I love it. It would be up for all the Oscars and it would get a lot of critical acclaim in, in my uh, fantasy version of reality here. But I, I do think that's true because this was this feels like one of those didn't know what they had when they had it situations. And and those movies are destined a lot of times to become cult classics, which this absolutely has even more so than uh, than the Dark Crystal did. So. A little bit of context as we talk about it. Uh, Morgan, do you want to jump in and tell us a little bit how David Bowie ended up in this movie? And then we'll we'll talk about some of our thoughts of, of, of watching. David Bowie, a little, little history lesson about the Bowie man here. So uh, if you're familiar with David Bowie, you know he spent the majority of the 70s in a cocaine-fueled bender. Uh, he made a lot of great music in the time, but he was also batshit insane from cocaine to the point where he was storing urine in jars and... Because he thought witches were trying to steal his bodily fluids to father Satan's son. Oh, poor Duncan Jones. <laughs> or, or Duncan Jones. Uh, um, flew to Berlin with Iggy Pop. They sobered up, and he eventually started making better music again. But the other thing that people don't, a lot of people don't know, is that throughout all this, he was in a huge heated uh, legal battle with his first manager that uh ended with him essentially owing him like something insane like 70 percent of all the album profits uh of his albums from the 70s and this made bowie relatively poor like he was one of the best-selling artists of the 70s and he could still only barely afford like a 10 year old used car in berlin like that's how much money he was losing to this management deal there's a big rumor that that's why a lot of the music he made in the late 70s is so experimental. It was essentially a giant fuck-off move to try and deprive his former manager of any money. But anyway, the legal battle decreed that in 1983, he would be able to finally keep all the profits from his albums. And not coincidentally, that's when he also stopped making experimental music and straight up made Let's Dance the most commercially successful and viable album of his career. So it's around the time he kind of got tired of being poor. Uh, obviously, because he made Let's Dance, and then Let's Dance sold like 10 million copies, and he's like, great, how else can I make a lot of money to live the celebrity lifestyle I was cheated out of in the 70s? Let's make another Let's Dance album called Tonight, which sucks. It's probably the first bad Bowie album. Um, but he also decided to try his hand at acting, because he, uh... He tried it once with Man Who Fell to Earth, which is a very, very good movie, but was not commercially successful. Yeah. Um, and he was looking for a hit in the movies, and he tried it with Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. It became kind of a cult hit in America, and it did decently in Japan. Um, he tried a movie called Absolute Beginners, which I think did okay. That was like a big recurring problem with his acting career was is it did never match the success of his music. Uh, and then finally, George Lucas, who was a I believe he was a co-producer on this movie. Uh, and Jim Henson both agreed that Bowie would be really, really good as Jareth, the Goblin King, called him up and said, hey, we have a kid's movie. Jim Henson is directing it. George Star Wars Lucas is producing it. Do you want to be the bad guy and write the write the music for it? And of course, Bowie said, yes, let's do it. Let's whatever. I'm already this far in on the sellout train. Let's do it. And uh, this was actually a really big deal because in all his other movies, uh, he had a stipulation in his contract that he was not to make any music for the movie. 
because he tried making it from man to fell to earth. They ditched his score, which half of it eventually became a low, the instrumental side a low, and replaced it with uh, a different composer. And he was so betrayed by that that he refused to write any other music for movies, with the exception of the title track to Absolute Beginners. And this was him saying, I'm writing a full album of music for a movie. So this was a huge deal. And it still flopped miserably. It kind of turned Bowie off acting because it was like, well, if George Lucas and Jim Henson can't get me a movie deal, who will? And this was his last, like, huge, huge movie role. Because uh, in the 90s and 2000s, he kind of only stuck to cameos and small roles after that. Bowie basically joined this movie uh, for the same reason he did a lot of things in the 80s, which was he really, really liked money. <laughs> and I think that the, the reason that people don't think of this movie as a cash-in is because it doesn't feel like a cash-in. No! I think he... When he's dancing with the Muppets as the Goblin King... It's this beautifully wholesome image where he looks like he's actually having a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, no. And if you uh, there's a great video on YouTube uh, that was from like a a CBS special where they went and it's like the making of Labyrinth. And you can tell he's having like the time of his life. You know, he's it's it's the only time I've ever seen him talk positively, talk positively about the laughing gnome, his novelty single from like 1967, because he was like, you know, I did dance, magic dance and I tried to record baby noises and it didn't work out. And then I figured, you know, I did the laughing gnome. I can make my own baby noises. And he's he's so into it. He thinks it's great. I don't know how you maintain, even if you're positive going in, I don't know how you don't maintain, you don't lose your positivity as you go because this movie has so much uh, practical effects. There's so much Muppeting going on. The entirety of dance magic, the, the dance sequence, looks so hard to make like this wasn't the 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 era when like they just threw up some green screens and he could do his part and then he could fuck off (laughs) every performer was performing this shit by hand oh yeah no and that's another reason to seek out that uh that behind the scenes special that i don't think it's on the dvd i think it's just on youtube but they go into the making of the dance magic sequence and it is insane because it's like it's bowie uh, they have to switch between the baby who's real and then a baby puppet for when he's like throwing him in the air and cuddling him and all that. And then there's like 17 puppeteers in the room that you just don't see. Like, it's insane. That looks so hard to to film. And so the fact that he has this sort of uh, sexy positivity the whole time is uh, really, really uh, charming to the film. And I think it created a lot of... Um, Young Bowie fans. I knew about this movie because several uh, women that I grew up with were friends with, were dated, just like told me that Labyrinth was like a really important movie to them. And I was like, I'm not, I don't feel like watching this kid's movie. Like it's, I didn't prioritize it. I kept putting it down the list. I In my head, maybe I was like, this is just something Bowie did to like maybe broaden his audience, whatever. And then uh, a girlfriend made me watch it. And I was like, holy shit, this is like, this is magic. Yeah. This is is actual magic. It is a movie that I think is very important to people that grew up with it, A, men and women. Mm. And, but over the years, I've seen a lot, a lot, a lot of women tell me that this movie was important to them. Um, Some of them mentioning uh, it being a sort of sexual awakening for them. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, I mean, David Bowie in this movie is uh, just... 
pure walking sex in this movie. It's kind I mean, he always is, but this movie, I would say, is probably his sexiest performance since, like, the thin white Duke days from, from like, 76, where he's strutting around in, like, a, a waistcoat and a really tight white shirt, hair slicked back. And- well, so, uh, when my daughter saw David Bowie on screen for the first time, she said, is that a girl? And then he started speaking, and she he said, she said, uh, oh, no, it's a boy. And I thought that was the perfect summation of, like, David Bowie's persona. In this That's movie. David Bowie in a nutshell. He, yeah, it is. Exactly. Like, like she got she got it. <laughs> yeah. She understood what, he, what, uh, what the whole androgynous and uh, look was, was going for. It is an interesting thing now that you see a lot of, like, uh, bros and, like, just people that, like, aren't really jiving with progressive politics, I should say. Uh, are really, really into David Bowie as, like, a classical, a classic music guy and, like, a rock guy, when uh, at the time, there were a lot of people, like, very concerned and weirded out by him, because <laughs> he seemed to be part of this train of, like, is he a man? Is he a woman? Like, why is he <laughs> oh, dancing yeah. around in makeup? Like, what wh- what is he doing? That's not a real man. And then these people would be shocked to find out that, like, David Bowie was having sex with, like, dozens, if not hundreds of people, um, mo- mostly women. It was a, probably a very confusing thing if you were a straight moron in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> and Bowie didn't help. Uh, one of my favorite quotes. I have a book of Bowie quotes on my desk, actually. And it's great because uh, there's a Playboy interview where it's like, so how did you meet your wife, Angie? And he's like, oh, she and I were dating the same guy in like 69. <laughs> so he did not help the confusion. <laughs> Bowie's great. Uh, it's one of the reasons I brought up queer art because I'm full disclosure uh, by but uh, that he the whole idea of you can embrace both sides of masculinity and femininity and kind of bring them together into this sort of perfect harmony where it's completely original and completely you is uh, something that uh, Bowie really helped me out with and thousands and thousands, if not millions of people uh, throughout the world, which makes him a great person. Yeah, no, that's great. It really is. Yeah, but anyway, back to the labyrinth. So how did they get through the maze? There was actually a comment uh, to try and break off the Bowie love, uh, to share love to the other standout performance in the movie, Jennifer Conley. A lot of girls... And women uh, you talk to say, you know, this is a really important movie growing up. And it's really easy to see with Jennifer Conley. She's very, it's very progressive, her character in terms of how she's depicted, because she's very into fantasy. She's very into taking her own, taking charge of her own destiny and all that. And she feels very much like basically any woman I know who's into fantasy or like Tolkien or basically any woman who's a nerd essentially uh jennifer conley feels to me like ground zero for or her character anyway feels like ground zero for how uh they depict themselves because she feels very her character feels very much like uh, a jumping off point no that's a great point because even though i made a joke as i was doing the recap about uh about her stepmother wanting her to um to go on dates and and stuff like that like it yeah, she is like, this is how I want to spend my time, and and this is what I'm interested in, and I don't need to conform to what you think a 15 or 16-year-old girl should be doing. Um, I have my own interests, and I don't need you telling me what yours were. It's great if that's what you wanted to do at that age. It's great what, that you still want to do those things. That's why they're going out yeah. on a date while he's babysitting, but 
uh, let me let me pursue my own passions. Um, and that's really great. Like, I really do like Jennifer Connelly in this movie. I think, yeah. you know, she has a lot of that tough – I think it's very tough to do any sort of acting alongside this much um, – Muppets and special effects. When the only other real person you're acting alongside is David fucking Bowie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The the Muppets are about as, like, relatable and human as he is. Yeah. He's this, like, alien that stands above humanity. And, and, then, and even by 89, his reputation is like, oh, that's David fucking Bowie. Had already been firmly established. Yeah. The reason that her job is so hard, I think, in this movie, and she, she does a good job at it, is that every scene she has, because of the way this movie is structured, like a like uh, like a video game, or like just a, a series of different things that you meet and then they go away forever as she's exploring the, the goblin world and the labyrinth, uh, every scene that she has to play is kind of the same. She has to see it and be like, what is this? And then react to that and then either embrace it or understand it because she's not one of those people that just rejects every new thing that she sees as weird or she has to get angry at it. So she's just playing the same character beats over and over and over and the fact that she equates herself so well uh, I think is is pretty good for a for a 15 year old actress and I believe this was her first role yes. too. so she she does a pretty good job considering all the things she has working against her yeah uh, when I, I remember her being really terrible in this movie and the reason is because of something that uh, kind of tapping into things you guys say I actually think she's really great in this movie but I wasn't seeing what the character was at the time when I first saw it the character is somebody who is she was 15 when she made this movie um, so I've heard some people say she looks a little older than that like it looks like she's supposed to be going to college instead of going to you know high school but she's 15, so she's, like, perfectly between childhood and true teenager, true adulthood sort of phases in her life. Um, and the movie is uh, in line with a lot of tropes of, of movies where it's about a girl who's immature. And she is kind of bratty. And she is kind of selfish and refuses yeah. to take on some of uh, her responsibilities as an adult or as part of a family or whatever. So... The movie is, is picking up off on, uh, you know, a very common kids movie trope, which is a kid is immature, a kid won't take responsibility, or something happens to a kid where they're forced to take responsibility uh, in an adult way. But the fun thing about this movie is that um, she is not asked to kill her fantasies and her dreams in the act of taking on responsibility, grabbing life by the horns and like engaging with all these other people. She's the movie doesn't end with her being like, I'm going to go date boys. Now it ends with her still uh, loving fantasy, but she's grown a new appreciation for her brother and like what the, what the, um, the asks of adulthood are and yeah. what, what her, what all her stuff means. She's there's a, my favorite scene in the movie. I'll get to it later is the junk scene. But yeah, I think the reason I didn't like it was because uh, I confused that brattiness with just being a bad performance, but really she's doing something really great where she's putting on a sort of like air of being an adult and yeah. then she gets flustered and then she looks like a kid. So it's actually a really cool back and forth 
and a perfect sort of adolescent, you know, early teens kind of performance. And obviously it's Jennifer Connelly. So we knew that she was going to become a great actress. I just thought that she was, this was just like her figuring it out. I think she had figured it out. Well, yeah. And that's what's so great about her character and the performance because you're right, Peter. The, like the parents are there at the beginning, but there's not, they don't come back. She makes her own decisions that she needs to save her brother on her own will. She, and at no point does she seem like she's worried about getting in trouble, just that she made the wrong choice. And then there's no one there at the end to be like, what a crazy story, Sarah. Like they do in so many of these similar themed fantasy movies uh, where they're, the adventure that they tell to people then gets like shot down and then you are left as an audience member wondering if it happened or not. Instead, that's why I love this fucking ending so much where she wonders if she needs to give up everything because she misses her friends and her interests and immediately everyone pops out and is like, oh, you want to hang out with us? We want to hang out with you. Yeah, no, we're we're all good. Let's all dance in the in the in the in your house. And that's wonderful. That's a wonderful like uh scene because it's very funny and unexpected. Uh it's also very resonant because it's yeah, you don't need to give up yeah. this stuff. Um I I don't know about you guys, maybe this is a good open question. Like, I really did have the sense growing up that at some point the things I loved, I was gonna have to stop loving them. Like when I was a kid uh, especially like, you know, there was like, whether it was certain music that I liked, whether it was TV shows, whether it was books I liked, like at some point I'm going to be a grown up, And then if I like these things, other grown ups are going to be like, what is wrong with you? And obviously there's a natural like falling off of stuff I liked as a kid. But I honestly thought there was just going to be a moment where I wasn't going to be able to enjoy the stuff that at that point I enjoyed. And this this movie has something to say about that, I think, which is, no, it's, it's there for you as long as you want it. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I mean, I remember growing up, um, you know, loving Nickelodeon and stuff like that and hearing my dad go like, you know, there's going to come a time where you're not going to want to watch these mo- these shows anymore. And I'm like... Uh, I don't want to do that. And surprise, surprise, I own, you know, yeah. every good season of SpongeBob. <laughs> and while I've been talking, I've been dicking around with a Luke Skywalker action figure. Like, I don't have, you know, that's a really good moral of the movie is just because you give up, you grow up doesn't mean you have to give up everything you loved as a child. I mean, there's, I mean, obviously there's a dark side to that. You just need to look at any video game forum or movie forum <laughs> to see the dark side to that. But I do think that is an important lesson. And I do genuinely think that is a unambiguously good thing about nerds winning the culture war of the thousands is the death of the idea that you have to put away the superheroes. You have to put away the sci-fi when you grow up. It's it's all sober, serious movies and entertainment well, for you. Jane Austen is the only author you all need as an adult. Like, <laughs> I'm only going to watch 60 minutes and Andy Rooney's going to be your David Bowie. Exactly. Like Those nerds that you're talking about are missing the point of this movie. Uh-huh. Because this point of this movie isn't you should love fantasy shit as much as Sarah does. It's you should love the stuff that you love and don't let other people tell you that you're too old for it or you shouldn't like it. Yes. But, but how so many people misinterpret that is 
they're not sitting there going, well, I like this Batman movie and I like Suicide Squad and I like this video game. And uh, they're they're doing the same thing that uh, Sarah's mom does, just about nerdy shit. Fair enough. Okay. If you don't like like this shit that I like and admit that it's good, I'm going to dox you or uh, harass you online. Right, right. And and I'm not – I was bringing that up more as like a negative side effect of that. I was talking about more how before like the Raimi Spider. Spider-Man or the Dark Knight, there was this kind of culture of, you know, oh, you like superheroes? Aren't you in high school? Or I guess for my generation, it would be, you're still playing Pokemon and you've gone through puberty already? Isn't that a kiddie game? And that's, as a culture, has kind of gone by the wayside. And I think this movie was a little bit ahead of its time in saying, no, 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 you can still be an adult and like your weird fantasy crap. Like, that's okay. Love what you love. Love what you love, yeah. 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 In junior high, you know, when you're kind of asked to put away childish things. Well, my dick gets hard now. I guess I can't watch Exactly. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, well, I guess I have to throw my action figures away because I only want to watch porn. Yeah. <laughs> the specific marker, I think, for me, that the thing that I gave up and I'm really sad I gave up is Legos. Yeah. Legos uh-huh. have, like, such a massive... Did Legos have a big part of your guys' life, or was... Oh, yeah, God, yeah. I used to have yeah. all sorts of... I used. To, I think I still have it in storage, in a, in my family storage unit, just the, the, the huge shelf of Legos. If my parents ever got rid of, I would murder them. Right? <laughs> no, no, I, no my, mine all went away, because it's like, I'm never going to need these again. Now, thankfully, I have a kid that I get to build Legos with again, but all, it's all marketed now. Like, it's all, like, brands. Like, I love when it was just, like, I don't know, Pirates... Castles, space. Uh, do you want to build yeah, a police station? I got a police station set. There you go. Yeah. There's so many. I said this is kind of structured like a video game where they meet people and they go away. So let's just start talking about the stuff that you know, scene by scene. That that you guys. I don't think the music in this movie is great, but I fucking love Magic Dance and Chili Down, and I love what they were going for in the Chili Down um, dance scene. But I really wish they would have tried to. Figure out a way to do it that wasn't that terrible composite. I don't even know what it is. It's like the it's like the worst Muppet animation that I've ever seen in any of the Jim Henson uh, Muppet movies. And it sucks, too, because I really like the creature design. And when they go away from the dance scene or walk around and chasing Sarah, it's it's great. But uh, but the song itself is is I, I like it. Choice. Quite a bit. It's yes. been in my head for a while. Yeah. OK, so I think it's a it's a thing of Bowie being better than the movie because song he probably wrote the song recorded it recorded it to a length or or he composed it to a length and then they were like okay well we can fill in four minutes or whatever where in reality the sequence should be a minute and a half it is like the full length of a song so like you not like the reason it's a memorable uh not great sequence in the movie is because it lasts so long and they have to keep using the same gags over and over again because eventually like if you're designing creatures just for a single gag that single gag eventually is going to wear out on our audience right yeah well and he actually wrote that one first like when he found out that he was getting labyrinth he wrote down and and he went home and wrote this song about bog men so you're right peter it is like oh now she runs into these bog men which would feel more out of place if um if that wasn't the whole movie but this one is a little Still a little out of place. It's a little weird. I do think Jennifer Connelly's expression throughout the whole scene uh, makes perfect sense because it's the only part in the movie where she appears totally and completely confused by what's happening. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, out of all the weird shit that happens in this movie, Chili Down is the only one where you can visibly see her being like, what the fuck? 
Why? Yeah, just, just staring in the same spot for a long time. Yeah. So I don't also, know what they're going to do here. How do you here. act against that? Yeah. You don't. Yeah. She looks a lot like how Ewan McGregor looks in Attack of the Clones when he's looking at, like, the green screen. And they're telling him, oh, there's, like, a bunch of clone babies in there. Just look like you're looking at clone babies. And in the movie, it's just Ewan McGregor looking like, what the fuck am I looking at? Uh, okay. <laughs> it reminded me a lot of that. Can I ask you a question? Um... Were you surprised at how this movie's sense of humor? Because I feel like the the humor is uh, is still funny to this day. Like, and it's, it's pretty sharp. Uh, it's almost geared towards adults. Like, I love the what is it? The warning signs or what? Whatever they're called, um, where they're like, "Turn the false back. alarms." False alarms. Yeah, where they're like, "Turn back. Go." Go forward. Don't go this way. And they're like, yeah, they just say that all the time. They're like, well, yeah, just let us do like- our job. Like, we don't <laughs> have people that come here that often. They're like, okay, go ahead. You'll die. Like, it's such a perfect Monty Python. Game. I was about to say, that's like the most Python-esque joke in the whole movie. The movie can't, the movie is too earnest to be read as satire. But the jokes sometimes feel like they're satire of, individual moments can feel like satire of, um, or parody of fantastical moments where they're like, there's a talking tree. And then, and then, uh, they're just like, but what, what does the tree do when people aren't around? And like, does the tree get excited when people finally <laughs> come around? Cause it's just sitting around waiting for people to come around. Yeah. Like, that, that feels like a parody of, um, fantasy tropes in a way that's very clever, very self-aware. And yes, probably more for adults who are aware of the tropes. This is, uh, Aaron, this is your daughter's first exposure to a lot of these tropes. So I don't imagine it's going to be a laugh riot for her. No, she thought it was fun. Like she did laugh uh, at certain parts. The, the farting bog was very popular. Uh, the, I would uh, imagine the guy peeing. She also liked at the beginning. I think that's a very funny and like jarring scene where she's, um, she's wishing for the baby to be taken away. And the second she starts mentioning the goblin King, it cuts to like a shot of all of the goblin Muppet goblin squeezed into just a, the frame of the picture with nothing in the background, like leaning forward for them to say the words. And then she says the big words that you as an audience member are assuming are going to be the magic words. And they're like, those aren't the words. Oh yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's yeah. hilarious. Then that's straight up out of Python. That's that's like a scene in a um, in a Holy Grail when they're like, they're like she turned me into a newt. What? It got better. <laughs> yeah. Sort of like a crowd a crowd of people riffing off of each other. Yeah. That's very Monty Python. Like just get all because it's it's them with their stage training. Get everybody together or skit training and stage training. Get yeah. everybody together in a tight little group because you've got ten performers and you want everybody to get in the scene and they're all bouncing off each other but not looking at each other. Like that's a very that's a very Python thing. Yeah. Well and Python obviously, like Holy Grail, for example, cranks it up to the nth degree, but one of the reasons why Monty Python and the Holy Grail is so funny is you have these people that are on a quest to never tip their hat or rarely tip their hat to all of the insanity they're witnessing, right? They're Like, everything around them is fucking crazy. And they're just like, okay, tree Pete, giant tree people, okay, this person, like, we need to go about our quest, uh, and there's a little bit of that in Labyrinth where they they keep meeting more and more like, you know, the the riddle doors, the uh, the 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 doors with, uh, you know, one one can hear because of where the doorknobs are, are placed and are the knockers are placed and one of them can talk. 
And uh, they they do that a lot where they're commenting about how ridiculous something is, um, which, again, just feels very Python-esque. To, it's, a, it's a have your cake and eat it, too. We're going to do the crazy, stupid thing. We're going to take it seriously in the movie, but we're going to make comments about how we know. Goofy some and, of it is. Yeah. Like, the, the other one that sticks to mind is when they're all trapped in the fart bog and all of a sudden they get saved by not falling in. By um, I forget the the big creature's name. All these rocks come over, and everyone's like, "Holy shit! How did you do that?" And he's like, "Yeah, no, I'm I'm friends with the rocks." Like, <laughs> yeah, it's great. One of my favorite favorite jokes in the movie, which is, uh, so they uh, discover there's a really clever visual illusion in this movie. There's a lot of not quite Fifth Element, not quite like Inception level, but there's a yeah. lot of really cool visual. Uh, illusions. Jim Henson was very much into forced perspective and trying to like kind of bring you into a fantasy world with practical effects, but also not cheating too much. And he does this really great gag where she's like, how do I, how do, there's nowhere to go left. And she just kind of walks towards the wall and you're like, is she going to walk into a wall? And then you see that there's a break in the wall that evenly blends in. Oh there's yeah. A, there's another fork. So she didn't even notice there was another side path there. And uh, her little, it's like a worm. Yeah, the little worm dude. The little worm dude is like, she's about to turn left. And the little worm goes, no, not that way. Don't, no, no, not that way. And she's like, okay, okay, I'll go this way. And she goes, right. And then it's, after she leaves, we stay with the worm guy. And he goes, if she went that way, she would have went straight to the castle. Such a ballsy joke yeah. for the movie to be like, oh, her journey could have been over in like five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's the shortcut through the labyrinth. Yeah. yeah, well, it's both uh, funny and also it reinforces, like, the first whole moral of the movie, because the whole point of that whole sequence is, is that she can't take everything in the labyrinth at face value, even down yeah. to the helpful worm who's telling her where to go. If she had actually learned the lesson, she would have been like, I'm going to go this way a little bit and see where it goes before I turn around. But she didn't. Well, so it's it's a nice, both a nice gag and it's also a nice storytelling point to say that yeah, okay she's she, like i'll believe you yeah, yeah like she hasn't fully learned her lesson yet yeah that happens the whole movie where everything that she thinks like i still haven't really figured out if she solved that riddle correctly <laughs> i haven't put a ton of thought into it i haven't graphed it out but it, it seems like she didn't in the movie but then again she gets to where she's going and she gets to meet the other another fun jokey like we're helping hands yeah well, I mean, Bowie yeah. himself says, like, wait, she got that far? She's not supposed to get that far. What the hell? So I do think she's she supposed to go the right way. That, that it's not a good place for it, like, because that's why all the goblins are laughing. Yeah. They're like, oh, fuck, she shouldn't have gone there. But Bowie's like, well, it's not good that, that she kept pressing on in the first place. So I am a little worried. I think Bowie also has one of my favorite, like, lines in this movie that isn't just funny, but, like, salient and, like, resonate a lot with me. Uh, which is where she keeps saying how everything's not fair, and Bowie just kind of looks at her and is like, fair? Like, I'm, I'm so curious what your basis of comparison is. Like, it's such a great line, because, like, in this world, how would she know what's fair or not? And and Bowie's like, yeah, well, I'd, I'd love to hear what your basis of comparison of fairness is. That's something that doesn't get discussed in this world a lot, where there's so many people who are... So so focused on what's fair in their opinion, they don't focus on what's right. And it's like, what is your basis for what's fair to you or to groups or 
or something else. Like, and so it's such a it's such a good line, and it works really well in any sort of fantasy movie where where yeah, you don't you don't know the rules, and also speaks to Peter's point about that kind of like child part of her coming out where she's still stammering on so to speak about what should be fair and not like as if the world is guided by those principles it's a pretty dense movie i think and as any movie where there are multiple creative geniuses not necessarily at the height of their powers but like not in their uh their their wany days either uh going at each other it's jim henson who is a very thoughtful guy who cares like fraggle rock is a weirdly philosophical show oh it's like all philosophy yeah like it's a weird you think it would be like the dumbest of the shows because it's just like these (laughs) maybe not like like maybe because like sesame street is out there to teach you a lesson and you're like is fraggle rock just from the era when they just like figured out that kids will look at anything and you're like well no jim henson doesn't make movies like that jim henson wanted to make a show that was like like uh, talking about philosophical ideas in a way kids could understand and maybe if kids don't fully grasp the lesson at least they're understanding that there's more to the issue like jim henson was always about open-mindedness because he was a very like sweet dude who like loved people even when he lost a little bit of faith in them he still was like okay but we can get this back is him having like a a conversation with jareth that involves like moral relativism is like not that shocking because it's jim henson it's shocking because this is a movie about a girl going to rescue her baby brother from a goblin king like a children's movie that's one of the reasons why i feel like jim henson always has that kind of like reputation is because he never he never talked down to children and it's something i'm remembering more and more as i go through a lot of his earlier creations that i haven't seen in so long um like even even like 70s episodes of sesame streets about how they're they're making these like meta jokes in songs like even songs that you guys all know like these are the people in your neighborhood a song i'm sure you both know throughout that entire song what you may forget is that every single person who comes up to bob who he is uh throwing out hy- hypotheses about uh what kind of job they can be uh his first description makes it sound like it's Santa Claus and everyone thinks, oh, yeah, no, like Santa Claus. And Bob gets increasingly frustrated. And it's it's a joke that didn't even, like, make any impact on me as a kid because it's just, oh, Santa Claus. They think it's Santa Claus. And, like, experiencing Fraggle Rock all over again and uh, the Muppet Show and watching these old Muppet movies again, like, it is amazing how much, like – it's not that he made joke for jokes for adults, like – People talk about, oh, this has stuff for adults too. He just made like one type of joke and one type of show and one type of movie and there was stuff in there for – it's the it's the corny, uh, you know, uh, it's for kids no matter how old you are. Like the kids of all ages thing that goes up to adults because he – He's making kids come to him and I I do feel like having been exposed to Henson material throughout my entire life, like it probably helped sharpen my sense of humor and my, you know, just go down the list of positive traits I think uh, hopefully I I had as a kid. Like my parents are responsible but also the the thousands of hours of Sesame Street and Fraggle Rock and everything else I watch were also – 
uh, probably partially responsible. Like, I start weeping openly when I hear the Rainbow Connection. And it just speaks to, like, how when I was a kid, I looked up to the Muppets as these... um, Not necessarily moral arbiters, but, like, my friends that taught me the ways of the world in indirect ways and direct ways like kermit would sometimes have things to say to me directly that were like well that's not very nice and sometimes like the way kermit would have a discovery i'd be like oh i should i should go through the same journey yeah as kermit. i should learn i should learn that lesson too because kermit is and kermit's my friend um there's a there is a a genuine beauty in jim henson's philosophy that i think gets lost in the fact that you know his target audience uh it's it's a movie that has that Jim Henson philosophy married to David Bowie being like deciding to have this sort of like broad appeal and make this big movie where he's like this this is Goblin King this big fantasy creature so it's not entirely out of his his wheelhouse but it's also like the idea of him doing children's entertainment is a little bit out of his wheelhouse so it's it's kind of like everybody blends together into this perfect mix. Everything kind of works together. I don't think the Terry Jones, like my Python esque jokes are out of place at all either. It, I, I have not seen dark crystal. The idea of this movie being less funny is uh, something that I would hate. Yeah. Imagine if the whole thing was serious and there was no human. That's why that's the other reason that he wanted to make sure that he had David Bowie or, or a human as the main antagonist and Jennifer Conley as the as the hero because uh, it is all creepily or scary Muppets in the Dark Crystal. So let's talk about that real quick. The movie is a, a dark fantasy movie that has a lot of creepiness to it. He, um, like we were talking about with Neverending Story, uh, this has uh, creepy cute things and cute creepy things. Yep. So things Love that eyeball, Moss. Yes, we get to like a, a little joke out of it because Jim Henson is like, well, you shouldn't be scared of this. Jim Henson's whole, a lot of Jim Henson's whole thing is like, why be scared of monsters? Like monsters aren't real. Why would you be scared of monsters? Like, yeah. and if you and if you you see somebody that you think is a monster, maybe just talk to them. Maybe they're not a monster. Maybe they're not a monster monster. They're just somebody that doesn't look like you. <laughs> the Python-esque humor also adds a weird sense of dignity to a lot of characters because it rounds them out. It makes them not just these, like, kind of perfect beings or, like, perfect in the sense of who they are embodied. That they they also have a sense of humor and they also have their own, like, uh, perspective that they look at the world. And sometimes that is a funny way to look at the world. Or Hoggle, who's kind of like this kind of a lonely man, old man who's been lost to the labyrinth. Uh, and he just kind of carries on. Uh, and he kind of has to open up and accept that, like, people care about him. The uh, what's what's the little what's the little fox's name? Like my favorite of the Muppets. I think he's very funny in that kind of like unrealistic bravery type. Uh, he, he, but he Dan has Quixote a good character too. Like, yeah, yeah, but but you can't keep him down. Like he, yeah. no matter what happens, like he's getting attacked by the giant iron thing, and his dog is like quivering yeah. in fear, and he's like, "Come on." No, come on. What are you? Why are you doing this right now? This yeah. is what we do. It's such a funny moment, but it's like his his character embodies perseverance. I mean, he's a pretty funny guy. I just think that the bog scene crossing the bridge is the one of the scenes in the movie that I would cut down. The movie is a little long. Um, there's a few too many tricks that they need to get through to get to the Goblin King's village. 
Let me tell you who would not cut down uh, that bog scene where he's running over it. Uh, my daughter. <laughs> because it is a, it's a fart every step. And I got to tell you, that's, that's, that's the highest level of humor for her right now. I mean, I'm kind of sad that the farts are not giving me that level of joy. Um, but that, that we need to watch everybody cross the fart bog is like... Uh, uh, more, more farts, fart. Peter. Yeah. Is this like a historical novel? Do I need to know like, well, it took it actually took Lois an extra day because he broke his ankle, but he made it across the river. You've never you've never heard of Homer's poem, the the 37 farts of Gilgamesh. (laughs) (laughs) Got to hear all 37. Yeah, I I, uh, the the dog is, I think, a pretty funny character, but it is easy. I think it's easy to sour on him because that whole crossing the bridge and crossing the stone sequence is just so long. And it's mostly just fart jokes for over and over and over again. So uh, if you don't find fart jokes funny after the first, like, nine minutes you're not gonna like the next 45 minutes of them yeah morgan fart jokes pro con how many farts is too many farts get in there i i I think that uh halfway through that fucking scene i was just like you know i was the one weird kid who didn't find farts funny as a kid and time has not been kind to that uh (laughs) that uh that opinion of mine (laughs) <laughs> Let me tell you something. Time is never kind to farts. No. <laughs> it's just like, all right. No, no I, I get it. I get it. It's the, it's the bog of eternal stench. It's it, You got to work in fart jokes. It's a kid's movie. But like, do we need to see the, the dog slow, like quickly walk over and then the giant slowly crawl over? Then Jennifer Connelly Again. do like half of it. Yes, More I'm, 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 I'm on your page, yeah. Morgan. It took fucking forever. Um, but I, oh, I mean, I guess like the movie is was so catering to me for ninety eight percent of its runtime that I, that having a few stray moments that I was like, this is just for the kids. I was like, okay, okay, okay it's fine. fine. Let's let's at least agree on something. Let's find some fart common ground. Just <laughs> the fun, funniest fart that you can do in real life or hear someone else do is that fart is just coming out as you walk instead of like one big fart it's just like step and then a little fart and the step and a little fart like that's the funniest version of farting I think so too it's like you're like a duck or something and you're quacking yeah <laughs> you're like I like to think that that's how it's propelling me forward. Like, that's my means of locomotion. <laughs> Fart talk. Richard talk. It's been a pretty good... Is it weird that Richard talk looks down at fart talk? <laughs> well, he's still in his kid face. He'll he'll uh, grow up and it'll be toot talk. Toot talking. So, yeah, I, I, I think that that's one of the few jokes that doesn't work for me. One of the jokes that really works for me is, and it's it's a perfect example of a um, contextual plot-driven joke. It's when she um, is drawing the uh, arrows in the labyrinth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then, like, the little and monkey creature, like, comes out and is like, what the fuck are you doing? And then, and then yes. puts it back. It's so much funnier that he's mad that she fucked up the tile. Like, he's like, this is my house. This is where I live. Instead of him just being, like, a skittering little, like, hey, gotcha. Like, him just being an evil little bastard is, like, not funny. Him being, like, 
this is my house. I live under this tile is like, that's actually funny. Yeah, I think it falls into the, uh, I think Jerry Seinfeld called it the uh, snooty waiter concept where it's so much funnier if instead of being outrightly evil or outrightly being a jerk, it's just someone who's mildly annoyed by something. And that's just makes for great comedy. Morgan, yeah. can I ask you a question? Are you whispering now? Yes. Uh, well, I'm, okay. I'm trying to talk really low. My uh, five-year-old cousin is spending the night. I didn't realize this when I agreed to do this episode, and now he's trying to sleep in the next room. Do you want Peter and I to be quiet, too? Like, yeah, let's just all get real room. quiet and low. Because at first, I'm going to be honest, Peter, leave all this in. I thought you were doing it for a fact. And then I'm like... Okay, he's still going for something here. No. <laughs> no, there's a very real motivation to the to the low Batman voice now that I realize how it sounds. <laughs> I will leave in the justification. Let's uh yeah, what is what are some of your favorite scenes in the movie as we're wrapping up? Um I, my favorite scene for sure in the whole movie is the junk scene with the junk witch. Oh yeah. Uh, Jennifer Connelly wakes up in the junkyard, realizes that she was uh, drugged by Hoggle. Um, which, what do you guys think of that, her getting drugged by Hoggle? I mean, it makes for a fun fantasy sequence, but I think the fantasy sequence justifies it because I really like that song and that scene. And I love the breaking the glass. Um, at the end, she kind of pops out of it. I always hate in these movies where one of our little friendships, one of our little buddies, and make him turn evil for some blackmailing reason. That's always that's such a common trope in kids' movies where, like, someone, one of the friends, one of your protagonists, one of your guys is, like, ends up having to be evil for something and feels really bad about it. So, it's not, it's not the most... I, I just like the idea of them all being a weird ragtag team taking on the Goblin King. But uh, but like I said, I think fantasy scene makes it a little bit worth it, as well as uh, to what, Peter, you're going to talk about. I do love that Junkyard scene. Yes. So the Junkyard scene is is really great. It's uh, basically Jennifer Connelly. She wakes up in a junkyard. Uh, Hoggle is over in the junkyard as well, just being super depressed. There's another fun illusion uh, visual gag. Uh, there's a few more in the movie, but th- that's another great one where she just like walks over to a pile of garbage and I think she like leans on it or just starts re- putting her weight on it, maybe to climb up it. And then the pile of garbage comes alive and it is this junk witch who starts talking to her and having this sort of snickety conversation. And the junk witch takes her over to this room and it's her room is a recreation of her uh, her bedroom back home with all of her toys in it and all of her stuff. And she starts to realize that all of this stuff doesn't matter. All of this stuff is just a distraction from her journey. It's a distraction from what really matters to her that, you know, people matter. And the fantasy does matter, but like it's not about the stuff. The fact that yeah. the doll went missing at the beginning of the story doesn't matter. It's not about the doll. It's about her living a full life with pe- with you know people. I use people in quotes. The monsters count as people in this instance. Um, but yeah, what did you guys read into that scene? It's just a really lovely scene. And she just turns and rejects it. And that's like really like she accepts the hero's call at the beginning of the movie. But she also like doubles down. She on understands the hero's call. it. She accepted yes. it, and now she understands it. It's a great scene. Um, 
it's so melancholy and sad. And then you kind of see um, what happens when you become um, obsessed with stuff your entire life over people. You become the junk witch, which is just like this kind of like chaotic figure in the background as she's making connections, as Sarah's making connections, walking around and trying to ask for stuff. Um not too shocking from like a message standpoint because Jim Henson and so many of his uh, work is very uh, anti-materialism, uh, which is great. Uh, but that you know, it's it's just so well played. And then again, seeing seeing the eventuality of focusing on stuff over people uh, in this very subtle way that most kids won't pick up on, but it has a lot of resonance is is fantastic. Yeah, no, I really really like that scene. It's one of my favorite. It is one of my favorites in the movie, just because um, it's anti materialistic as brought up. Um, it feels. I know we kind of joked about like socialism earlier, but uh, it does feel like a vaguely socialist sentiment in a kid's movie that it's, you know, don't be bogged down by materials, focus on what's important like family and heeding the hero's call and all that and that's, I like that a lot because you don't see that in kids movies as much anymore I feel like that's yeah. more common in kids movies of this era, especially Jim Henson stuff it's before they realize how much money they can make on toys. Yes. Exactly. Like, I I loved, I mean, no one liked toys more than me, and I was tied with every other kid in the entire world because there's nothing greater, you know, every kid wants to go have a Transformer or a My Little Pony or whatever else they love to be able to go home and make their own adventures with it. So, it's not that I'm, like, anti-toy, but it, you're right. They don't go this clear and, like, saying hey, there's more important things and the stuff you love doesn't have to be associated with the stuff. And I think that's a tough line for a movie to walk. And this movie does a great job of it because uh -huh. it is a movie about loving the things that you love and, um, and not being told to walk away from that. And it, for her, loving the things that she loves means loving the, you know, fantasy worlds and books and all this stuff. So the fact that this movie could easily have a contradiction of, well, wait, isn't she supposed to embrace that she loves this stuff, but also she, um, this stuff is bad for her and empty and that people are more important. And I think so, this movie threads that line of like, yes, you should love what you love, but keep in mind, some stuff you love is, is just stuff. And if you let it overtake your life, you become the junk witch and just amassing things until you're literally buried in it. I really like that scene. Um, I mean, my favorite scene in the movie is probably the, the the ending in the MC Escher world. Oh, yeah. Um, that's really great. Um, both. <laughs> because when she goes, she's like, I gotta go alone. And they're like, why? And she's like, well, that's just <laughs> how you do it. It's just how these stories are done. Like, the hero's gotta do it alone. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense, but okay. Which I think is the funniest part of the movie. It's a really self-aware, great sequence, but also it's a great subversion of the usual endings where what do you expect? The, you'll see that she walks into a big chamber, a big throne room, very similar to the one we've already seen, and that she has a conversation with David Bowie in a throne room. And then through conversation or, you know, like a quick trick from earlier in the movie, like a Bond a Bondian thing where like Hugh gave one gadget that we don't remember from the first 
five minutes that uh, now matters everything. Or she's like, I remember one trick on how to defeat you. And she does remember one trick how to defeat him, but it's done in this MC Escher chamber. And it is so visually cool. Like it's an illusion that always works for me. The movie is full of illusions, but this one is a really great one to cap the movie on. No, I really like the MC Escher world. And I really like the, uh, when she finally faces down, Jareth in what looks like the final battle room from Final Fantasy VII, <laughs> where it's just all these random stairs floating in a void. It also it reminded me of uh, Hellraiser Two Hellbound, weirdly <laughs> enough, which I think is 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 not a bad comparison because that also is supposed to have a disorienting realm. But at some point they go into the Hellraiser world, and it's like this weird kind of. Um, empty worlds with stuff floating like that uh more more flesh uh fuck monsters than than this movie to be honest more bondage illusions in 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 the hellraiser than labyrinth i I, i'm very surprised i mean let's be clear (laughs) labyrinth doesn't have zero i'm just saying hellraiser 2 has more My other favorite scene is the ball scene, just because I saw it, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe David Bowie's big plan to throw Jennifer Conley off the set is to drag her into Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> I do think the, the, the Eyes Wide Shut room does touch on a very, um, I'm sure there's an essay done by someone who's far smarter on it than I am, but I do think there's an underlying theme in the movie of um, women, especially pubescent women being forced into being essentially sexually active before they're ready. Oh, yeah. Because like, there's that line in the beginning where their mom's like, you know, I wouldn't have you babysit if you had a date. You should go on dates your age, even though she's like 15. And that's like, that's kind of a weird thing to say. I mean, it's not weird because she's like a teenager, but it's still like... Why is she forcing it? If you had a boyfriend, uh, you know, we'd consider that adult enough for you to cut slack. But this whole playing princess thing... No, gotta babysit. Yeah, it's it's weird that, like, forced labor is the punishment for not uh, getting a date. Yeah, that's weird. But, I mean, there's that line in the beginning, and then there's David Bowie's big plan to throw her off the scent. His last saving throw is to essentially try and seduce her. Because, I mean, that whole sequence is David Bowie essentially trying to imprison her in an eternal acid trip where she's married to David Bowie, which let's be honest, that is a very tempting illusion. Yeah, it doesn't sound that bad. Yeah, no. It's... That ballroom looks great. Can I say I don't think it's, in my reading of it, it's not as extreme as that. It's that it's trying to give her what she wants, which is to be a princess in a fantasy story. Yeah. Which is what yeah, she's but the, playing But her beginning. prince is David well, yeah. Bowie. David Bowie. He's and, trying to and, be her prince. Otherwise, he would have put someone else in that sequence. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I mean, there is, I get it. it's, it's easy to miss, but in the, like, the realm of like stuff that inspired Labyrinth, it is subtly, very, very subtly implied that she has a huge crush on David Bowie because there's a couple pinups of news articles with Bowie in them in her room. And uh, so I always read it as like the Goblin King took the form of David Bowie because he knew that she was a big fan. Hold on. In her room are posters of David Bowie. There's a couple uh, on her mirror. There's a couple of news clip newspaper clippings. And they're obviously from news stories that David Bowie is in because it's like a big, big picture. But it's like Let's Dance era David Bowie in like a news article. Like they don't make it super obvious that it's but there's like more than one. And it's on her mirror, like, where a teenage girl would put, like, a guy she has a crush on. 
That's amazing. And since I will be watching it 300 more times, I'm going to watch out for that one. Yeah. So yeah, I, I genuinely like think, think the Goblin yeah. King chooses to look like David Bowie to prey on that. Which is, uh, uh, it makes him much scarier. Uh-huh. I mean, well, that actually explains in canon why the Goblin King doesn't look like a goblin. <laughs> he looks like David Bowie. Yeah. Tall, majestic, royal alien. Yeah. Or it kind of it sells the theory that this is all fantasy because the 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 person is taking the form of a real life person that she uh, has some sort of, you know, 15 year old crush on. But uh, I'm sure it's out there. But that is a reading I read of the movie was that it's kind of about society forcing women to take on this kind of like sexualized role far earlier yeah. than they should and i think that applies to all genders but especially women and i think it's kind of revolutionary that they made a movie about that i think it justifies enough uh yeah. weird questions that i have left over at the end of the movie and also it's convenient because it fits with everything that i already thought about the movie but yeah i think she definitely there's definitely a a sexual attraction thing there is some sort of sexual dynamic going on behind the scenes and the fact that it is unspoken in terms of terminology is i think better because it's still a children's film and she's 15 i'll say i feel like i got every scene out that i wanted to talk about um i i'm just a little sad for myself I'm sad that I did that dumb fucking thing where you've seen clips of a movie or you've seen some of a movie or you've heard a lot of the movie or, and you feel like, I, I know this movie. I've seen this movie. Yeah, I like it. And I have been on that train for like 15 years and I never actually sat down and watched the whole thing from beginning to end, even with knowing how much of this was up my alley from the Muppets to the songs to the sense of humor and I'm so glad we did this for the show. I'm so glad that I um, I was able to see this finally from beginning to end. And I am I absolutely loved it. And I'm very glad I loved it. Because, as I mentioned, my daughter uh, watched it with me and she loved it. So if anyone has a kid or knows how kids work, I'm going to watch this to the end of time. So I'm glad it's a good one. Yeah, you lucked out. It could have been uh, Caillou's big movie, The Weiner Express. I or... fucking hate Caillou so goddamn I mean, much. Caillou is a, yeah. a curse. There was there was a there's a hard trolls phase I'm still going through and that's you know this is that's kind of my Vietnam right now but we all uh, have our crosses to bear it's it's at least you know what Justin Timberlake Anna Kendrick good singers it's, some of the songs are catchy it's not a good movie I wouldn't <laughs> Uh, I think it's a very good movie. I'm glad I finally got around to watching it. Being a huge Bowie nerd that I am, um, my main thought. And I know you're all doing 80s fantasy month, so you've already gotten this out of your system. But it is so refreshing to see a fantasy movie that is not basically just doing either Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. That is so Oh, nice. my God. I talked about that last week with Never Ending Story about how I was like, man, there's just not enough of these. Like, yeah, let's just do a bunch of crazy shit. And that's our fantasy world instead of like dragons and orcs and elves and all that. Like, stuff. Uh, you know, as much as I love that stuff. I do kind of hate Lucas and Jackson for doing that because it seems like every fantasy movie that comes out now, it's just Lord of the Rings with another weird ass coat of paint on it. 
and that's it. it it's it's fun because it also is like this sort of um, it is a dark world with like everybody is wearing like misshapen armor and the monsters are not typical aren't just drawn from mythology in the way Tolkien stuff can be it's the, the entire art style of it is very Hansonian which makes it so much more compelling, I think, on a visual level. The aesthetics of it are, are sort of threatening, but silly, but it never loses the two halves of that. Like yeah. It's, it, when it's silly, it's still a threat, and when it's a threat, it's not super scary. It's a voice all its own, and you don't really get that in fantasy movies anymore. Yeah, that's that's kind of where I want to go with my final thoughts. I think that it is uh, a particularly unique movie. I think it, even though it might have been lost in the time of reviews, I think that people were seeing, remembering the best 10 scenes from 500 other fantasy movies and like, what does this movie have that those don't? This is probably the best movie we'll watch this month. It's one of the best movies we've watched for uh, in the show recently because it is a movie that I think works Yes, for kids of all ages, as Aaron Aaron pointed out. It, 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 and every time that I've watched it, I've been like, okay, this is operating on a different level than I realized. I really like, Morgan, your, your theory or your just revelation involving maybe Bowie is actually exists in the, the meat space universe of this movie as opposed to the fantasy land as well. Um, I, I really like that. Um and in that way, I think that it's a really compelling movie to revisit. The music is really great. I do think it's like 10 to 15 minutes too long. But like, Aaron, I'm sure your daughter doesn't notice that length. I'm sure that like the scenes that kind of annoy you, like are you also don't notice the length because it's just such a charming movie. And I don't think it overstays its welcome. It's always trying to charm you with new illusions, new tricks, new jokes. It never lets anybody get bored. It's a it's it's a. It's a pretty beautiful movie. Here's the secret about where you have to go mentally when you're watching a movie over and over. It's just that you just – it's acceptance. You have to skip all the other stages of grief and just accept that you have a child and they're going to watch the same movies over and over. I did it. If I had all the free time in the world, I still may do it with certain movies where you just watch a movie a lot in a short period of time. It's, so, there's not like – nothing in Labyrinth sticks out as like a bad scene that I'm sick of because I have – I'm awash in acceptance of the the television and the movies I end up watching with her. So when a labyrinth comes around, <laughs> a My Neighbor Totoro, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, like something that she loves and also I love it, there's no bad scenes. It's all good, baby. It's all good all the way through. I don't have to watch uh, any garbage scenes over and over. It is like... Because it's not about what's on screen, it's about what else could be on screen. So, would your review of Trolls for the show just be you doing... Yeah, no, it would sound... No, it would sound like I was uh, captured by some enemy forces and like, day 57. Um, this time, they, they couldn't hurt me so much with their total lack of plot and McLovin's <laughs> terrible character and the fact that I'm, I'm I think this this movie has a terrible message from my child but what do you do she likes that fucking Justin Timberlake song it's the first song she ever requested on her own and we had never played it for her she's in the back seat yelling I want to hear dance 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 and dad figured it out what she meant uh, to my uh, great chagrin and uh, <laughs> personal toil <laughs> 
Well, yeah, because the other option is to pretend like you didn't understand her and then maybe harm her in a different way. <laughs> well, so excited. She, she was like, like she was requesting a song. You know, it's like she was like two. She's like, Dad, I want to hear dance, dance, dance. I'm like, dance, dance, dance. What could you mean? Wait a sec. Is it this song? And it was like a great joyous moment that is now my sitting in the, the hut with Marlon Brando. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it could be worse. It could be last summer. I lived with my brother in Colorado, and he has an and he had uh, at the time he was seven. Now he's nine, seven year old, and I'd babysit him a lot. And his favorite movie at the time that wasn't Star Wars, um, which we watched a lot, and that was great. But uh, his other favorite movie is Adam Sandler's fucking Pixels. Oh. <laughs> and I had to watch that shit like six times. <laughs> you gotta be you gotta be careful what you. Here's what I've learned. Last thing I'll say, and then we'll do some plugs for Morgan. Netflix has changed the game as to what a kid wants to watch. Because before you went to the video store, they pick out something. Now, you'll just be sitting scrolling through something. She's watching it and she'll be like, she'll see a picture of something and want to watch that. And then that's it. Like, you are watching that. It's how I watched The Search for Santa Paws. She saw a dog dressed like Santa Claus. That was it. Nothing else was going to satisfy her uh, through that trip through, uh, like, recommended stuff. So, you got you to gotta be very careful when you have your Netflix application open. There should be an age limit. There should be parental locks. I don't know. But it's, it's a minefield. Uh, anyway, yeah. Morgan, what do you got to promote? This was a blast. I'm so glad you came on. Yeah, this is so fun. Thank you for coming on, especially on short notice. We told you like two days ago. Yeah, no, I would, I'm happy to oblige any, any help. I'd love to, I loved it last time. I loved it this time and I'd love to be here again. Um, oh, you I, will. I do have another thing to promote. Um, once yeah. again, it is not my project because I am a selfless, selfless person. Uh, it is my friend's band, whispering? The Endless Night. <laughs> um, my buddy Scott is the drummer. He is one of the best drummers I've ever known. Um, he, but the Endless Night is a hard rock and metal band out of Omaha. They are on ReverbNation.com and could use, I think it's like a vote system. I'm not entirely sure because I'm not in the metal, but they can use your votes. Um, if you like uh, Pantera, Slipknot, uh, Killswitch Engage, or Mastodon, you will probably have something to like in the Endless Night. Check them out on Facebook and Reverb Nation. Links will be somewhere. I like this. is This is fun. Like, someone promoting now twice in a row stuff that's not his. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of sweet. Yeah, I'm got and sweet I'm, boys on this show. We got a lot of sweet boys. Now, I hope other people listening feel really bad the next time they promote something um, yeah they're like uh 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 yeah i've got a mo- i've got a i've got a movie out but i really want to promote craft macaroni and cheese uh, uh and also also give to the american lung association please i don't know it sounds nice i don't want to sound like a dick and just promote me yeah morgan ruined this this was supposed to be a a fun mutually beneficial arrangement now i don't know give to the united way <laughs> exactly no um, I'm sure if I ever do come back I will have something because I am actually in the process of working on something with uh, Clarissa Vandell who was the writer I promoted last time Uh, we're working out we're doing some sort of project that will be premiering hopefully in the spring so if I come back that'll be what I promote that would be really cool yeah, it'd be great. Uh, come on, promote whatever you like, as long as you know you can live with yourself after promoting your own work next time. Um, uh, I already know how to do Hail Marys. I'll be fine. So, Peter, uh, we got one more week of 80s fantasy movies. Why don't you tell our listening audience 
what we're doing. We're going to watch a little movie called Legend by Ridley Scott. It's going to be a movie. Oh, There's going to be a Tim Curry devil. Mm-hmm. Tom Spoilers. Cruise in the movie. End of list of things I know about the movie. <laughs> Mia Sarah. Is Mia like, Sarah in it? Yeah, there's three people in the movie, essentially. Is Mia Sarah the, the nice lady from Ferris Bueller's Day Off? She is. She is one of the prettiest people. Well, good, because we're watching the director's cut, so that's like 30 more minutes. Some of those minutes contain Mia Sarah, Peter. That's awesome. Can you give me the exact number of minutes that it contained Mia Sarah? <laughs> well, you're going to find out uh, next <laughs> week on We Love to Watch. And we're actually ready to announce February. So February last year, we, we did a sports theme. Because it was – there's a Super Bowl, we've heard. Yeah. Um, Play ball. We're like, we're like, do sports, but do them with the We Love to Watch twist. So, it's future sports. So, sports that you can't play, but you can watch. Actors pretend to play them. This month – oh, my gosh. Similar type of take on the month. Uh, it's February. What do people do in February? They bone down, specifically on one of the days. Uh, um, February uh, Feb- is phonetically it's going to be a month where Aaron will announce the name of the month right now. Loving monsters, but people fucking monsters. <laughs> <laughs> no, not what women want. Um, uh, man, that joke killed in text to me. I'm glad you're workshopping stuff on our personal <laughs> lives for the show. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we're doing... Uh, I, Sometimes they don't fuck because the logistics are impossible. Sometimes yeah. they do. We're going to get into that. We're going to do uh, our f- second ever uh, th- uh, movie that was released the same year we're covering it. Uh, next week or the first week with The Shape of Water. Uh, then we are going to be doing uh, Bram Stroker's Dracula. Then King Kong from 2005. That's the one where the logistics don't make sense. But there's a lot of there's 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 a higher level of love. Yeah, uh, if you think sex is just about penetration, you know, maybe get your mind out of the gutter. Yeah, folks. Oh, uh, if you think sex is fun, have you ever tried getting kidnapped by a gorilla and scaling the Empire State Building? Um, so uh, we're excited to the that. greatest thrill. Hope that's a Twitter meme is still in your minds. Uh, when this episode comes out, uh, sex is for virgins. I like getting abducted by monkeys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then we are—we're uh, wrapping up that month with the 2015 uh, movie Spring, which, while not my favorite movie of 2015, is my—it's like my little baby. It's my little sweet baby film. Like it's the one it is a that sweet little baby. Di- it didn't, you know. Everyone lo- loves Mad Max and Inside Out, and uh, it follows. This is my like sweet little baby that not everyone's heard of, and you're like, hey, have you seen my baby? It's great. I love it. This and is also one of the movies people. that Aaron and I first bonded on. It's a really yeah. great movie. And also um, one of the one of the first movies I think uh, I got the recommendation of in the Dissolve when that was a website when they started doing their essential viewing. So it's a full circle movie to wrap up. Fucking those monsters. Fucking those loving monsters. Uh, thank you so much, guys. And, and with that, I think we're going to end the show in a t- typical 2018 fashion by saying goodnight.
And with that, I bid you adieu. <laughs> adieu. You need to unfurl your your petticoat or something when you're doing that. You to, like <laughs> the hand motions. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> I bid you adieu. Wait, wait, hold on. There's no visual, so this won't make sense. But yeah. good day. You didn't see it, <laughs> but I just I just flipped open a hand fan, and now I'm fanning myself. Oh, that's oh. beautiful. Yes. My stars. It's good day. Are you saying good day to being warm? Well, good day, mate. I'm from England. I'm a chimney sweep. sets of legos i was like i wanted every single cowboy set and then when they discontinued it i was like that was probably my first sign that capitalism was uh, a little iffy so i was like wait hold on <laughs> they discontinued the cowboy set but everybody loves cowboys all the time why why would they get rid of the cowboy set like it was so baffling in my head that they could they, ever discontinue a set they have guns like, the best thing yeah what what Just imagining you, you now, like, they, they discontinued the cowboy set? <laughs> Dressed to the, prole- dress to the bourgeoisie! <laughs> <laughs> I start throwing cocktail, uh, Molotov cocktails through the windows of Starbucks at, like, nine. Um, <laughs> Nine-year-old yeah, co- mouth, little red book, I demand the, the cowboy time. sets be returned for the proletariat. <laughs> the proletariat <laughs> needs to build my- the ranch. <laughs> I like the idea of someone being a hardcore, like, violent version of a socialist, <laughs> a revolutionary socialist, but they're defending, like, a pretty colonialist, possibly racist set of toys for children <laughs> produced only in capitalism. So it's um, like it's like Tyler Durden at age 12. Yes. Um, but yeah, so my, that was the thing I had to give up. And now once or twice a year, I get to play with Legos again. Um, my brother-in-law who has a little kid is getting really, his little kid's getting into Legos, my nephew, and, uh, I'm getting to play Legos with those two when I go home and it's like some part of my brain clicks on that I'm like, oh shit, we gave this up too soon. Yeah. No, it's, uh, the best part about doing Legos with like, um, my kid who's three is that she's not old enough to want to put it together herself yet, but she does want it to look like on the picture on the box, which means that I still get to put them all together until they in- inevitably <laughs> get destroyed. Like two, three years. No, that's going to be the funnest part for her is putting it together. So I, I got a, I got a, I got a small window for me to put together all of her, uh, all of her Lego sets before. And I'm, then three I'm years after out. that, yeah. And then three years after that, she's going to be like. Well, I guess I'll build the set, but then I'm going to smash it and make something bigger. And yeah. like, that's the fun thing about Legos yeah. that I really miss is the the like pure creation aspect of it. And that that is something that was a fantastical part of my life where I could tell all these stories to myself about this town being besought by the robots and zombies and shit. And like, I could play out all these stories. Like, Legos yeah, because you had to, you had to yes. have time travel. If you were playing yes. with Legos, like why is the spaceman talking to the to the the guy from the 13th century? Oh, I got a whole plot going. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or it's just like anime where it's like there's a dude with a 
a samurai sword fighting against a robot dinosaur and you're like oh yeah that's just anime that's yeah no that's what i always did and also they have a cowboy friend exactly no that's what i always did because I, uh, I i was into legos like right as they were starting to bust out the star wars legos so i don't have like you know the samurai castle and then oh wh- what's that coming out of hyperspace it's the millennium falcon and then i would like bust open the top of the samurai castle and there would be a martians inside and it'd be a martian samurai castle for no reason which is yeah, yeah. super anime <laughs> yes it is yes it is martians would build uh, yeah, a samurai th- castle yeah i mean that would be them looking back through the scope of human history and be like that shit's dope i mean that's I basically the plot thing- to like five different star trek episodes now that i think about it yeah <laughs> i i do find it interesting how much all of these 80s fantasy movie uh episodes that we've been doing peter have derailed into talks of childhood which i think is so appropriate but uh pivoting back to labyrinth yes uh, Let's start with the movie hey folks thanks for listening uh, to, to we love to watch thank you so much for listening to our show and we've got just a few quick announcements for you there ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs baby if you'd like to talk to us uh tell us we're stupid tell us we're beautiful the quickest way to get to us is our facebook group facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.